You're listening to a special edition Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting the pace earlier of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number of Fed officials. banking so system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Welcome to another Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's Economy Matters podcast. I'm Julie Hotchkiss, research economist and senior policy advisor in the research department here at the Atlanta Fed. Immigration is an issue that has been much in the news lately. It's often said that we are a nation of immigrants, but the U.S. has a long history of alternately welcoming and restricting immigration. And to understand current U.S. policy on, well, pretty much anything, including immigration, it's important to have a well-informed historical perspective. To help us give some perspective on issues related to immigration, I'm talking today with Dr. Ron Abramitsky, an associate professor of economics from Stanford University. Ron is an economic historian and has published his work on immigration and many other topics in top economics journals. He's also recently written a book, The Mystery of the Kibbutz, Egalitarian Principles in a Capitalist World. In it, he tells a story of his own family's history with kibbutzim and explores how this experiment in volunteer socialism has survived the inherent conflict between equality and incentives. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about your research and what we can learn from history. Thank you for having me, Julie. I'm going to dive right into the hard questions. In spite of the acrimonious political environment surrounding immigration, I've read recently that the share of Americans thinking we should have lower levels of immigration has fallen from 65% in the mid-1990s to about 35% today, which is apparently a record low. Also, the Chamber of Commerce recently concluded that immigrants significantly benefit the U.S. economy by creating new jobs and complementing the skills of U.S. native workers. Okay, so my question to you is whether this apparent conflict between changing popular sentiment and current political stalemate on immigration issues is new, or do we see other instances of this political disconnect throughout history? Well, it may be true that fewer Americans today call for lower levels of immigration than 20 years ago, but it's also true that immigration has become more divisive over the last 20 years. Now, is this conflict new? Not really the tension between viewing the U.S. as a nation of immigrants Uh, and fearing that immigrants are bad for the economy has been the key issue during the age of mass migration 100 years ago, just as it has been the key issue today. Uh, When you read what politicians at the time said, it sounds a lot like today, similar language, similar concerns, but only targeted at different immigrant groups. And so in the past, it was toward Irish and Italian immigrants. Today, it is towards Mexican and Asian immigrants, but otherwise very similar Mm -hmm. issues. Okay, so are there any lessons from history that we could apply to today's politicized immigration debate? Or, I guess conversely, are there lessons from the past that just simply no longer apply today? Right. So I think there's a lot to learn from history. The debate was remarkably similar then and now, the same kind of questions. What kind of immigrants did the U.S. attract? How did immigrants perform in the U.S. labor markets? Did immigrants catch up with the native born? Did they assimilate into society? How did they contribute to the economy and society and so on? And so my long-term collaborator, Leah Bustan, and I, uh, often with uh, Catherine Erickson, uh, devoted much of the last decade to study these questions. The idea is to bring data and long-term perspective on the immigration debate, which is often based on fear and anecdotes rather than evidence. And so one reason to study the past 
age of mass migration as opposed to just today, is that U.S. borders at the time were open to European migrants. They were definitely not open to Asian migrants, but they were open to European migrants, and this allows a window to how immigration might look like in a world without immigration restrictions. Another advantage uh, of looking at the past is that history provides us with a long-term perspective. Uh, so politicians, as you know, naturally take a short-term perspective on immigrants, which lead them to care more about how immigrants do when they first arrive. But one lesson from our work is that taking a short-term perspective gives a misleading sense of immigrants' lack of success in the economy. In the past, uh, it often took immigrants more than one generation to close the economic gap with the native-born. Today, evidence suggests that while first-generation immigrants on average receive more health care and more income support, but second-generation immigrants more than pay off their parents' debt to these programs. Another lesson from our work is that while immigrants definitely care about maintaining their original identity, they also integrate rather quickly into the broader society. So I think it's fair to say that overall, history teaches us that it will be a mistake to determine our nation's immigration policy based on the belief that immigrants will not integrate. It was not true in the past, and it's not true today. So considering the political climate today and the current level of immigration in the U.S., I can't help but wonder whether there's some magic number of immigrants that tends to trigger a higher level of concern among some immigration critics. For example, in the 1900s, the immigration share of the U.S. population exceeded 14 percent, which resulted in strict immigration quotas. We are once again about at that 14 percent share and hearing loud cries for limits to immigration. Is there any evidence globally for this notion of a magic immigration number? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Leah and I were wondering the same thing. Uh, when immigration reached 14% in the 1900s, politicians like Henry Cabot Lodge advocated to close the borders. When immigration reached again 14% today, politicians advocate to build a wall and close the borders again. Uh, when immigrants reached about 14% in the UK, uh, politicians like Nigel Farage advocated to close the borders and to Brexit. And so, yeah, uh, maybe there is something magical about this 14% uh, number. Uh, maybe more likely as immigrants become a significant share of the population, uh, native-born start to notice them more and blame them for some of the country's problems. Right. Those similarities are striking. Yeah. Um, well, let's turn now to from policy to the experience of immigrants themselves. You mentioned assimilation earlier, um, but let's start with, um, let me ask you, who actually chooses to immigrate to the U.S., and has it changed much over time? Right. So, so in terms of country of origin, there has been a big change. Uh, in the 1860s, 90% of immigrants were from Western Europe and Northern Europe, such as Britain and Germany and other Scandinavian countries. Uh, in the 1890s, immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe started to come in larger numbers, like from places like Italy and Russia. Uh, and by the time the border closed in 1920, about 40% of immigrants in the U.S. were from Eastern and Southern Europe. Today, of course, uh, Europe is no longer a main uh, sending region, and 75% of immigrants coming to the U.S. are from Latin America, mainly Mexico uh, and Asia. In terms of skill levels, there has also been a change. In the past, uh, despite the nostalgic view, immigrants from poorer backgrounds uh, were more likely to come. And of course, Emma Lazarus' song on the Statute of Liberty reads, Give me your tired, poor, huddled masses. So she knew that a long time ago. Uh, today, uh, immigrants uh, often come from developing countries, but there is what economists call positive selection from almost every sending country, meaning that uh, more educated and skilled people are actually more likely to move to the United States today. 
Well, we, we also often hear about immigrants being motivated by the, quote, American dream, where someone might come to the U.S. penniless and then catch up with the native-born residents. How accurate is that experience for immigrants? Yes, yeah, so the, this conventional wisdom of the American dream, we think, is overstated. Uh, of course, we all know stories of immigrants who came with very little and made a fortune, but this is not uh, the experience of the typical average immigrant. Uh, in fact, uh, both parts of the conventional wisdom is, uh, are inaccurate. Uh, that immigrants start out worse than the native-born in the labor market is inaccurate. We found that, on average, immigrants didn't do worse than the native-born upon first arrival. Of course, this varied a lot country by country. Uh, so immigrants from some sending countries like England actually held higher paying occupations than the native-born upon first arrival, while immigrants from other sending countries like Norway held lower paid occupations. Uh, but the, so in this sense, like that immigrants start out worse is inaccurate. But uh, the same time that uh, there was a fast catching up is also to a large degree inaccurate. We find more evidence for persistence than for catching up. So immigrants from countries that started out with lower paid occupations than uh, the native born uh, still held lower paid occupation 30 years later. Uh, Catching up basically sometimes take more than one generation, and uh, this is one reason why we think it's important to take a longer-term view to evaluate immigrants' economic success. We all know that uh, you know, Norwegian immigrants today are doing quite well, and it wasn't always the case, and sometimes it took them even more than one generation to okay. get there. Okay. Well, you mentioned earlier that we have sort of a different wave of immigrants today than we did uh, in the past. Um, how did the assimilation of those European immigrants in the past compare with assimilation of a lot of Mexican immigrants today, for example? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, like first, maybe it's important to notice that uh, both in the past and today, the concerns about immigrants' lack of ability to assimilate often have to do more with uh, culture than with economics. Uh, we find that uh, both in the past and today, immigrants make substantial efforts to integrate into the broader society. So be con being concrete about it, using historical censuses, we found that immigrants learned to speak English, they applied to U.S. citizenship, they, and they married outside of their group. We even found that uh, immigrants gave their children more American-sounding names when they spent more years in the U.S., eventually closing almost half of the gap in naming practices with the native-born. And similarly, using modern data from California birth certificate records today, we find that Mexican immigrants give their children more American-sounding names when they spend more years in the U.S., similarly closing a third to half of the gap with the native-born. And by the way, just, just to be clear about this, it is important for me to know that our research on cultural assimilation uh, doesn't at all suggest that immigrants should assimilate into the dominant culture. In fact, a diverse society is a society that embraces different cultures and identities. But our research simply implies that uh, those who claim that immigrants do not assimilate are simply wrong. Uh, there is substantial and measurable assimilation of immigrants both in the past and today. So what I'm hearing you say is that more things change, the more they stay the same, pretty much. Um, well, what about the actual impact of immigration on the U.S. economy? What would you say is the current conventional wisdom, or if we might say consensus among economists, about the impact of current immigration patterns on the economy? That's a tough one. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> there is definitely no Lots consensus. Lots of opinions. <laughs> exactly. There is definitely no consensus on this question of how immigrants 
affect the native born? It is a complicated question to answer, uh, mainly because it is a causal question, if you want. It's a, uh, the data doesn't tell us uh, directly what uh, would have been the wages and employment of the native born had immigrants uh, not arrived here to begin with. And so I would say one thing is for sure, it is a more complicated issue than it seems at first sight. So the intuition that immigrants increase the supply of labor and reduce wages is a powerful intuition, but it's also incomplete. So immigrants are customers, they are not just workers, so they increase demand as well. And immigrants and the native born are often not perfect substitutes. And there is also more than just one type of labor that as we typically assume in our model. So it is a more complicated topic. And I, still, I think that uh, most economists will tell you that uh, there is no strong evidence for large impacts of immigrants on the native born. Most studies find small impacts, if at all. And that is not to say that nobody is impacted. To be sure, immigration does create winners and losers. And those who compete more directly with immigrants, including previous immigrants, by the way, uh, are, off, are sometimes negatively affected. But the impacts on the average, if you want, native born worker are much less conclusive. And, but definitely, there is, uh, this is still an open and active area of research. Well, is this, is this pretty much always been the case, or are some of the impacts different over time? Yeah, that, 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 that we need we actually on that very interesting question we need uh, more more research because mm -hmm. yeah, like on the, you know you can think on the one hand we might expect that today's immigrants benefit the native born more. In the past, uh, immigrants and the native born completed more you know they competed uh, more directly for the same jobs. Uh, today, as uh, researchers like uh, Giovanni Perry shows us. Uh, immigrants tend to come in two types. Uh, either they have very high-skilled jobs, like they solve differential equations and they start up firms, in which case they actually create jobs for the native-born, or uh, on the other side, they work in low-skilled occupations that few native-born want to do. Uh, the native-born, on the other hand, mostly work in middle-skills occupations, so immigrants and the native-born uh, are not perfect substitute to each other, like they maybe used to be more in the past. But on the other hand, it's also true that in the past, the U.S. was transitioning from agriculture to industry, and the U.S. population was smaller, so perhaps uh, it was easier for the economy if you want to absorb immigrants uh, and there is a growing body of literature uh, that suggests that immigrants in the past benefited the economy and the native-born quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I know you've, you've done a lot of research on immigration and, and assimilation, but what is the burning question or questions about current or historical patterns of immigration that you, that you think still need to be studied? <laughs> oh, <there laughs> I don't mean so, to, yeah. to give away your research agenda. Yeah, well, there, there, are, there, are so, there are so many questions to study. Maybe, maybe I'll just give you one example. Uh, you know, Leah and I and, you know, have long felt that uh, the analysis of quantitative data, such as uh, population censuses, don't actually capture the full immigration experience. So, so censuses don't tell us why immigrants wanted to come here to begin with and how immigrants felt when they first arrived and what was their subjective experience and so on. And so they also don't tell us how immigrants were perceived by the native born and how this perception of immigrants changed over time. And so to get at the immigrants' subjective experience, if you want, so we, meaning, uh, you know, Leah and I together with uh, Dylan Connor and Peter Catron, uh, are now analyzing a thousand, you know, thousands of in-depth interviews with immigrants done in the Ellis Island, uh, and uh, to get a sense of the perception of immigrants, we, together with economists Matt Jensko and Jesse Shapiro and Stanford linguists Dan Jurafsky and Rob Voigt, analyze the attitudes 
towards immigrants in the New York Times and over in other newspapers and how it changed over the last 150 years. So this is maybe the research that I'm most excited about right now. Well, your, your data sources are fascinating. <laughs> I guess you. as an economic historian, you have to do a whole lot of digging and searching for your own data. All right. Well, I'm going to change gears a little bit here, and I'd like to wrap up our conversation by giving you an opportunity to tell us about your new book, which came out just in February. The book is titled The Mystery of the Kibbutz, which is not to be confused with the book Murder on a Kibbutz. Don't know if you've read that. Great book. Uh, it comes up as the second result from a search on Amazon, by the way. But actually, for our listeners' benefit, the full title of your book is The Mystery of the Kibbutz, Egalitarian Principles in a Capitalist World. And first off, Ron, can you quickly explain what a kibbutz is, for those who may not know, and what got you interested in researching them? Yes, yeah, so kibbutzim, uh, which is plural for of kibbutz, uh, are communities in Israel that were based for many years on full equality in the distribution of incomes among members and on collective ownership of all property. Uh, they are important social experiments in income, in income inequality and income equality, and as such, they challenge traditional economic theory. Now, I first got interested in them when I was a child. Uh, you know, I did not grow up myself in a kibbutz, but my, my mother did and all her part of the family did. And so kibbutzim have always been an important part of my life. My grandparents actually founded uh, one uh, kibbutz uh, in the south of Israel and my grandmother lived there for 50 years. My mother grew up there and left and her sister stayed. And then my brother is now uh, married to a kibbutz member and lives, on, lives in a kibbutz. Uh, and so I, uh, as children, my brother and I always loved kibbutzim. It was a great place to, you know, we wandered around the green paths of the kibbutz. And uh, our parents didn't have to worry about us because it's a safe place and it's a great place to be in. And uh, when I grew up a little bit more and I, as a teenager, I admired kibbutzim even more because the idea of sharing everything equally sounded like a just and right way to go. Uh, but as the cliche goes, uh, if you are under 20 and you are not a socialist, you have no heart. But uh, if you are still a socialist over 30, you have no brain. <laughs> uh, a little bit of the same thing uh, happened to me. And so I remember one day I was doing actually as I was studying economics in the Hebrew University, uh, we had uh, lunch uh, with my uncles and aunt in the kibbutz. And uh, my uncle described a path-breaking innovation of uh, his factory, which is like a really fabulous uh, factory. And I decided to provoke him. And I told him, you know, uh, according to economic theory, uh, the factory doesn't have, it shouldn't be as good. And uh, kibbutzim should not survive and it should not exist anyway. Because, uh, you know, why would anybody uh, work hard if all they get is an equal share of the total incomes? And so I explained to him uh, the free rider problem that we studied uh, and then I told him, you know, besides that, you know, if why would anybody with uh, who is very talented and can earn more outside the kibbutz, uh, why wouldn't they leave? Israel is the size of New Jersey. It's, uh, everybody can leave. You know, like, why, why, why wouldn't there be a brain drain from kibbutzim? And also, like, uh, why wouldn't all the lazy workers <laughs> and people who don't have much prospects, why wouldn't they enter a kibbutz? What a great way to be subsidized by other people that are more productive than you. So like the adverse selection problem. And then I continued my annoying speech and told him that, uh, you know, like I also, I, I would worry a little bit about the, his children because uh, what are the incentives to study hard in school when the returns, financial returns to schooling are so low? Like if uh, in a world where a computer science engineer earned the same thing like a high school dropout, what are the incentives for studying hard? And of course he 
you know, he got a, a little bit upset and we started a nice <laughs> fight. And uh, he said, yeah, you economists are so uh, cynical and you think uh, people are only selfish and think about their, uh, you know, like their, them, themselves. But everybody who is familiar with the kibbutz uh, knows that uh, kibbutz founders were anything but selfish people and they cared more about the collective uh, and so on. And he, he got me thinking. And to begin with, I, I didn't actually truly believe everything I said. Uh, and as I started my PhD at Northwestern, I decided to study this uh, in more detail and uh, collected data on all 268 kibbutzim and members of kibbutzim uh, over, over the last uh, 80 years, really. And, uh, you know, with the idea of, like, asking how did kibbutzim thrive and survive despite all this incentive problem and, uh, you know, like, uh, when can such society fail and succeed and can we create a society in which people have equal incomes and what are the costs of this and so right. on. It's a long right. answer to your question. No, no, that, no, that's really good. It gives people a, a really good idea of, of all of the, all of the uh, multiple details that you delve into into the book. Um, but you also detail um, a declining period for, for kibbutzim um, uh, through the 80s, I guess the 70s and 80s. And, and you find that the shift of most of the kibbutzim away from equal sharing to be related to a higher work ethic and higher productivity, but at a cost of happiness. And so it got me to wondering whether there's a way to strike a balance between growth and happiness and what role right. equality might play in achieving those. Right. So, so starting the late 90s, uh, many kibbutzim shifted uh, for the first time in their history away from equal sharing. Uh, kibbutzim have introduced various degrees of reforms ranging from small deviations from equal sharing to substantial reforms where members' budget are mostly based on their earnings. And this shift away from equal sharing uh, increases the financial returns to schooling as well as the financial returns of working hard and, and so on. And so together with uh, Victor Lavi, I document that uh, high school students indeed start to take school more seriously once their kibbutz shift away from equal sharing, especially if their parents were relatively less educated. Uh, and there is, as you say, there is also some suggestive evidence that the shift away from equal sharing improved work ethics in kibbutzim, but might have come at the cost of decreased sense of community. Mm -hmm. And so I would say the kibbutz experience suggests that income equality does not come for free. Mm. Uh, what you gain in a safety net and insurance, you may lose in individual incentives. But if you raise incentives, uh, inequality follows. Uh, still, I would say that even under the equal sharing period, uh, incentive problems were not nearly as severe as a naive economic logic would suggest. Even in the absence of monetary returns, for example, kibbutz members worked long hours and, and acquired education and skills. Uh, and many talented members did stay in their kibbutz, allowing many kibbutzim to thrive. And so uh, even kibbutzim that shifted away from equal sharing uh, continue to provide a safety net to weak members and to the, old, to the older generation and maintain mutual assistance as a building block of the kibbutz, even if they are not uh, based on the full income sharing uh, that they once were. Mm -hmm. Right. So even um, in spite of those changes, you identify sort of a common ideology as providing an important glue for sustaining the egalitarian kibbutz model. Does this imply that a society that's religiously, ethnically, and morally diverse, say, as some might, might say the U.S. is, incompatible with a more equal distribution of wealth? Well, yes. The founders of Kibbutzim were often rather homogeneous, as you would sure. say. They were young Jewish people who shared similar ideological and vocational training, and they had similar prospects. And this homogeneity 
made the creation of the kibbutz easier. Mm-hmm. Now, over time, idealism declined and kibbutzim became more diverse, making income equality more difficult to sustain. So I would say, more generally, uh, it is easier to sustain equality in a society that is religiously and ethnically less diverse and where people are relatively homogeneous and have similar preferences for redistribution and similar abilities and so on. Uh, so like, you know, it is easier to sustain income equality and a more generous welfare state in Sweden and Norway, which are relatively homogeneous, than in the U.S., which is uh, more diverse. Mm-hmm. And you've done some study in those countries as well on, on those data. Through your research on the on the structure and evolution of kibbutzim, you come to some more general conclusions about inequality. Tell us what lessons we might learn about inequality from kibbutzim. Yes, yeah, so so while the book is on the kibbutz, I, uh, it addresses uh, uh, some broader questions like can we create a more equal society and under what conditions such society will succeed, when it will fail, and so on. Now, in a world of rising income inequality, where uh, the top 1% in the U.S., for example, today hold about 40% of the country's wealth, it's only natural that many people wonder whether and how we can create more equal and just societies. And so the way I thought about it is think about it. uh, If people were given a choice to live in a society where all incomes and resources were shared equally, who, who would choose that option? And would the th- society thrive? Would they work hard in their society? What rules and norms would they choose to govern their society? Now, these questions are hard to address typically because people are not typically given <laughs> such a choice. choice of where to live. And so, like, you could study former communist countries, but uh, they, as we know, can't help us answer these questions because their citizens couldn't exit at will and couldn't vote against socialism. And so maybe liberal socialist countries like Sweden and Denmark and Norway are uh, offer, of course, they offer more individual choice, but the egalitarian and socialist principles are more difficult to disentangle from other factors. And so the way I thought about it, kibbutzim offer a laboratory uh, with which to address these questions because it allowed, uh, immig- you know, like mm-hmm. Jewish immigrants, especially Ashkenazi immigrants, which is a totally different story, uh, allowed them uh, the choice of whether to live in a society that is more equal. Okay. All right. Well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. I only have a couple of chapters <laughs> left, and I'm looking forward oh, to finishing you. your book. Thank you very much, Julie. And this brings us to the end of another Economy Matters podcast episode. Please visit the Atlanta Fed's webpage, frbatlanta.org, for economic and banking information and for materials on related topics. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.